In the Scholars Who Preach series, which is now in its ninth year, we bring to campus world-recognized biblical scholars who also excel in the pulpit. We do this because we consider that biblical scholarship rightly done moves naturally and inevitably to preaching. And that preaching, well done, confronts us with exciting, new, challenging insights from the depth of God's Word. We could think of no one who better combines scholarship and proclamation than Clifton Black. The, uh, the um, Otto A. Peeper, professor of biblical theology at Princeton Theological Seminary and an ordained elder in the United Methodist Church. You can find his uh, biographical information in your programs, but uh, let me add just a personal word. Uh, Clift and I began our teaching careers at the same time. I knew him as a young scholar when we were active together in the Matthew Group at the Society of Biblical Literature. Even then, the buzz about Clift was that he is an imaginative, creative, and eloquent biblical interpreter. And that recognition has only grown with time. But most importantly, Clift is a man who loves God, God's Word, and God's Church. So we look forward to hearing him preach uh, here this morning in Estes, and we anticipate hearing him teach tomorrow afternoon at 4 o'clock in M203-205 at the Biblical Seminar, an event to which all of you are invited. Clift, welcome to all of you. My thanks to Dean Bauer for his invitation to this pulpit and his gracious words, and to you all for your warm hospitality this week. This is my first visit to Asbury and to Wilmore, Kentucky. I hope it won't be my last. This is, this is a beautiful part of the world whose beauty is exceeded only by the beauty of its people, and I'm honored to be here. Thank you. Let your scriptures ever be my delight, O Lord. May I not be deceived in them, and may I not deceive by them. Amen. I can't recall ever having heard a sermon preached on the death of John the Baptist. Most of you, I assume, are preparing for pastoral ministry and would benefit from hearing an inspirational word this morning. So naturally, I've gravitated to the only New Testament text that narrates a beheading. Now that we have that straightened out, there's another knot to be untangled. Why so large a chunk of Scripture? I can detect tremor of fidgeting among some of you already, but don't worry. I, 
have my grandfather's pocket watch right here beside me, and I promise it's not going to let me get out of hand. So we're going to be fine. Scripture preaches just by being read. That's one reason. Another reason for a text so long is my conviction that Mark intended the stories of Jesus' sending of the twelve, John's execution, and the feeding of the five thousand to be remembered alongside one another, cheek by jowl by cheek. Why did Mark tell these stories this way? Maybe he wanted us to consider two very different approaches to ministry and to ask ourselves which one befits servants of the gospel of Christ. First, Jesus dispatches the twelve to engage in ministry much like the one he has performed, casting out unclean spirits and healing some who were sick. Now, the impressive thing about this commission is its simplicity. The resources he tells them to take are so minimal as to be nearly incredible. A staff, the sandals they are wearing, overalls and underwear, no bread, no money in their fanny packs, travel light, don't linger, Preach, and if they don't accept it, move on. Simple. When they return, 16 verses later, the 12 are quick to report all they've accomplished, but that's hardly the point. We know it's not the point, because Jesus now commissions them to feed his hungry sheep, all 5,000 of them, with five loaves. Oh, and a pair of sardines. You give them something to eat. The disciples don't get it. Most days, neither do I. Like the twelve in Mark, I tend to think ministry is about me. Even after all these years, that's the trap I still spring on myself. It's about my ability to pull it off, whatever it is. The feeding of the multitude by Jesus' disciples should forever have laid that canard to rest. The disciples don't do a thing but deliver to others what Jesus has already blessed and broken and given to God. And all are fed and satisfied. They even have leftovers. 
all because the little they have is offered to God and blessed by Jesus. He's the chef, not us. We're the Papa John's delivery service. No more, but certainly no less. Sometimes when students are helping me to puzzle my way through the parables in chapter 4 of Mark's Gospel, I'll ask them if they've ever experienced something like the sower in that chapter. You know how it runs. A sower went out to sow, seed falls beside the path, nothing. Seed falls among the rocks, zilch. Seed falls among the thorns, zip. Seed falls into loamy soil, and look out! There's a 30, 60, 100% yield way off the charts. If not already, someday you may be interviewed for a pastorate and someone may ask you, how would you evaluate yourself as a preacher? What if you answered, well, you know, it's weird. Three Sundays out of four, my sermons fizzle out and go nowhere. Just over the pulpit, straight to the floor. The thing never gains altitude, just drops like a dead duck. But here's the thing. Every now and then, maybe one Sunday out of four, I make the same pitch. No changes. And that sermon takes off like a rocket and pulls me and everyone else along with it. And you and the search committee stand up and everybody shakes hands and they say to you, what? Maybe they'll say to you, feed us. Please, we're hungry. We are starving for gospel. The real thing, not the fake stuff. Not the purpose-driven, total money, magnolia makeover back to me. We've tried gospel light, and it tastes thin. We're famished for the gospel of God. Can you feed us some of that? Please. Some scenes of heart-rending famine never make the covers of Time magazine.
If we don't serve them gospel, who will? When you come down to it, that's finally the only reason that any of us have for being in ministry at all. Doctors may keep our tickers running a little longer than those of our grandparents, but the docs can't tell us why we should go on living. Entrepreneurs, well, they can show us how their bottom lines stand at 35% over last year this time and 60% higher than five years ago, but will they account for how that profit will be used and just what it took to make it? Politicians? <laughs> Please. I am still naive to hope that somewhere in Washington there's a Jimmy Stewart or a Tom Hanks who is decent, really cares about everyday Americans and will do the right thing even if it costs them re-election. Most days I know that I might as well believe in Santa Claus and the Tooth Fairy. Many years ago, I read in the Washington Post a comment by one of the Capitol's thousands of lavishly paid lobbyists. It's an offhand remark whose cold candor arrested my eyes. I never forgot it. This fellow said, and I quote, there are only two engines that drive Washington. One is greed, and the other is fear. Now, in particular cases, that diagnosis may be wrong. Overall, the evidence before me confirms that it's right. It certainly matches what little I can stomach of our 24-7 media. Greed and fear. As old as politics itself, older even than Machiavelli, though he put into words what everyone had always known. Greed and fear. The unseen, ever-present visitors at Herod's dinner table. There they are at the Antipas birthday party, the cabinet, the joint chiefs of staff, Galilee's highest and mightiest, and after one drink too many, Herod, that lecherous fool, blurts out to his stepdaughter, who happens to be one hot entertainer, whatever you want is yours, even half my kingdom. Come over here, honey. Name your prize. 
and his wife finessed that offer and her daughter into eliminating the one person Herodias most despised, her harshest critic, John the Baptist. Greed and fear together again. Mark tells us that after Herod sprang the trap he had laid for himself, he was truly sorry. Arrested for political protest, John had been placed in a kind of protective custody. Herod respected John as a man of integrity. But if you're the head of state, you can't be proved a liar in your own house at a state dinner before a room full of politicians and generals lusting for your power and who have to be controlled. At the head table, greed and fear sit on either side of Herod, whispering reminders in his ear. And perhaps when John the Baptist was escorted from his cell, he heard Herod's voice whispering in his ear. Uh, John, we haven't always seen eye to eye, but you know how much I respect you. Why, you're the last honest man in Galilee. Down the corridor, dead man walking, here's live king whispering. John, you know the way the world works. I've gone too far. I can't back down now. I made a promise. It was stupid. Never should have made it, but it's a promise I have to keep. Into the executioner's room, John is led as Herod's voice keeps whispering in his ear, see, if I lose face, I lose control. I lose control and all hell breaks loose. You know I can't have that. We can't have that. And up the steps to the trap where a tall axe stands poised beside a stained block with a basket receptacle. And as he kneels, still that voice drones in John's ear. I can never say this publicly, John, but you know how much I love you. I admire you. You got guts, John. Ah, oh, how I admire your guts. You know, you're the only person I have ever known. That's how prophets die. Not in a blaze of a heroic glory, but for the pettiest pretexts in lonely places haunted by hatred and shame, and the jailers holding the keys to death's chamber are greed and fear. This is as true of Washington as it is of Galilee. Sad to say, it is true also of City Hall, the corporate boardroom, and even at its weakest and worst, the church. John's disciples at least gave their teacher's body a decent burial. By the time fear had worked over his friends, Jesus' body wasn't even accorded last rites. 
two scenes, two suppers. First, Herod's national power festooned in wealth, draped with betrayal and guilt, fueled by greed and fear. Every instrument is at Herod's disposal, save savvy enough to elude manipulation and a means to check his overweening pride. He opens his fat mouth, utters words he can't retract, and a righteous man's head is severed from his shoulders. Now consider the banquet over which Jesus presides. A wilderness north of nowhere, populated by thousands of nobodies, attended by 12 dumb waiters. There's nothing at Jesus' disposal save compassion for the multitudes milling around like shepherdless sheep at a faith in God to whom Jesus offers his disciples the little they've got. He opens his mouth and pronounces blessing. 5,000 are fed, more than satisfied, abundantly refreshed. Which banquet is real? Both of them. Never have God's people gone without nourishment as far back as the Exodus in Sinai or only yesterday in Wilmore. And never have we been without Herod's Scheming and schemed against, beheading their threats. Which banquet will prevail? Only one. That hosted by God, presided over by his Messiah, Jesus with the resurrection of the Christ, crucified by Herod's patron, God saw to that. We see it with the eyes of faith. With common vision, we see that before long, Herod was toppled. Finally, all the Herods are toppled. Herod's then, and Herod's now. At which banquet will you take your seat? That is the question before you and me and everyone with whom we minister. We can't make up their minds for them. Only for ourselves can we decide. 
offer the choice to others, and then leave the rest to God who still owns the vineyard, who still calls to life what is sown while we sleep and rise night and day, faith sprouting and growing, we know not how. This much I know. I may be a sheep, which, as most of you know, are rather stupid, unteachable critters. But I'm one sheep who knows the sound of his shepherd's voice. That voice is unmistakable and sounds nothing like Herod and his pals, greed and fear. That's all I hear on the news. This lamb is sickened to death by their voices, sick of being jerked around by greed and fear. I may be wrong, but I bet that most of you and most of the people in your congregations are too. It's past time for the church in America's heartland and across the world to wake up and hear the true shepherd's voice, which sings with Isaiah not about fear, but about faith. Surely it is God who will save me. I will trust in God and not be afraid. For the Lord is my refuge and my sure defense. The Lord will be my Savior. You're a pastor. You give them something to eat. And God will bless your offering. And God will multiply it beyond your knowledge or calculation. And your congregations will be fed with leftovers. And rest assured, the Lord of the banquet is one greater than you.